Rural Health Voice, Episode 58, Stimulants. Welcome to the Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. How are substance use disorders related to stimulants different or similar from opioids? Dr. Richard Rawson, research professor at the Vermont Center for Behavior and Health, joined me to discuss stimulants and how we can do a better job with treatment. So welcome, Rick. Hi, glad to be with you. I'm so glad you're able to join us here today. So let's dig a little bit into your history. How did you first become interested in studying substance use disorders? Well, the uh, somewhat mundane answer to the question is I needed a job. And uh, <laughs> when, I finished, when I finished school in 1974, uh, there were some of the first uh, research projects on addiction being funded by the brand new National Institute on Drug Abuse. And so I took a position at UCLA. Um, actually, it was one of the first 10 grants that the NIDA uh, funded. And so we started out, we, it was heroin addiction grant because this was the post-Vietnam heroin uh epidemic. And so I was involved in some work uh, early on with treating people with heroin addiction. And what do you think, you know, with with that sort of foundation and looking at heroin addiction, what do you think some of the biggest changes have been in the field of substance use disorders over the years? Well, I think one of the most meaningful is that we've moved away from uh, providing treatments and services that are based on our belief systems and our ideology, and we've moved to providing treatment based on science and evidence. And I think that's uh, been a huge step forward. Also, uh, in the late 90s, uh, Dr. Alan Leshner, who was director of NIDA, was one of the first people to really call out addiction as a brain disease, and so that we no longer thought of it as something like a disease or a metaphorical disease, but is an actual disease, and the brain is changed by the use of drugs. And I think both of those those issues combined to point us in the direction of using um, treatments like um, buprenorphine for that has made a huge difference in our capacity to effectively treat people with, with opioid use disorder. Certainly, one of the things that we've talked about in this podcast is that you know substance use disorder. It's not. It's not a moral failing. It's not a lack of religious conviction failing. This is this is a disease, just like having diabetes. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and it's um, when people get involved in using drugs when often when they're young and they're uh, exploring with lots of different. Um, you know, youth behaviors. Uh, drug use is just one of the many things that they they sample. Unfortunately, depending on a whole variety of circumstances, uh, some people um, head down a pathway that takes them to changing their brain and developing what is for many people a lifelong disorder that um, they have to learn how to live with. 
You were a presenter at our recent Appalachian Communities Opioid Response Summit talking about stimulants. How do you define stimulants? Stimulants are the uh, category of drugs that include uh, drugs like, uh, including cocaine, methamphetamine, uh, prescription medications, prescription medications used for the treatment of ADHD and narcolepsy, things like amphetamine and uh, Adderall and Ritalin. Uh, all of those are in the stimulant category. There are some others. Um, I mean, nicotine and caffeine are also a mild stimulants, but the three, the, the main two that we're uh, addressing right now in the U.S. public health system are, are cocaine and methamphetamine. And this podcast has had several episodes on the opioid crisis in rural America. What's different about stimulants? What happened is we've gone through a couple of phases of uh, problems with stimulants. In the 1980s and 1990s and early 2000s, we saw both a cocaine epidemic with the drugs coming from South America. And at the in the early stages, cocaine was a cool, hip drug that uh, was used by a whole array of people. Um, and it was considered at the time that cocaine wasn't addicting. One of the first things we had to do after we saw thousands of people losing their lives uh, and their, you know, everything they'd ever uh, accomplished, that losing them to cocaine was we had to redefine what addiction is in order to take into consideration what happens to people from cocaine. And about the same time, we also saw in rural America the emergence of uh, methamphetamine as a huge problem. And the, the source of the drug was in home laboratories. Uh, if you watch Breaking Bad, you got, you got a sense of what the earlier uh, methamphetamine crisis was like. And that really went for about 20 years until laws were passed that restricted the availability of the precursor drugs, and it pretty much went away. However, in the last five years, both cocaine and methamphetamine have made a resurgence, methamphetamine in particular, as a much more dangerous drug and the thing that makes the current epidemic even more dangerous is that fentanyl is included in almost all of the drugs we see on the street now, including cocaine and methamphetamine. So we have da more dangerous stimulants, and included in those more dangerous stimulants are is fentanyl, which is an incredibly uh, dangerous opioid. Well, and with that, when I first started this job, so we're talking 15 plus years ago, we were all worried about meth not only for you know, concern for people with substance use disorders, but because the environmental hazards of home-based labs. People were terrified that a house in their neighborhood would blow up because someone was cooking meth in the bathtub. But we don't hear about that anymore. How has how the, the danger shifted? Well, the, I mean, when people could go to the drugstore and buy a case of pseudoephedrine, you know, medic over-the-counter medications for allergies and decongestants, and they could take those those pills home, and in a very rapid time convert them into methamphetamine in a home lab. It during that period we had the the problem you described, which was that the production was as dangerous as the as the use. However, in in 2005, federal laws were passed 
that means you can no longer buy pseudofedrin in large quantities. I mean, I think now if you go into, depends on which state you're in, but I think generally people are limited to buying two small packages of pseudofedrin products. And so that law and related laws have re- brought an end to the, the domestic production of methamphetamine. However, as that happened, the cartels in Mexico uh, got involved in uh, supplying methamphetamine, and they've done it in a much more efficient uh, way. They produce a much more potent drug, and although we don't have the danger of labs blowing up, the the danger of the drug that's being imported into the U.S. is much more deadly than what we saw 20 years ago, and the overdose death uh, overdose death problem from the current drugs on the street is much more severe than it was 20 years ago. And one thing that BRHA continues to highlight in regards to opioids is that many people start using opioids because they had a medically valid reason to do so and received a prescription from their doctor. Are there similarities with stimulants? Uh, not, not yet. Um, the, um, there is some concern and there's some research going on looking at the extent to which, uh, the rate of prescription of medicines like Adderall and Ritalin and amphetamine are going up for the treatment of ADHD and, and other disorders, but that doesn't, that's not the primary source. I mean, it, it may be an increasing problem. We don't know. But what we do know is right now on the streets across the country, virtually in all over the country, uh, methamphetamine is uh, widely available. It's cheap. It's pure. And the distribution system, that is the dealers, are pretty much the same dealers that dealt uh, opioids. So the, the one overlap you see is that the distribution system of methamphetamine comes from the same dealers that deal heroin and fentanyl. And um, so there is some overlap with that. But, but it, it didn't, the, the people who are involved in stimulants in cocaine and methamphetamine, the vast majority didn't start with medicines and then switch. They started um, with the street drug itself. What's the impact of stimulant use on the health of the individual? Oh, it's pretty scary. The um, and this is this has changed in the twenty years since the earlier uh, meth problem because of the increased purity and potency of the methamphetamine. Uh, the drug produces profound effects on the brain, and we're talking now. I'm going to talk a little bit about methamphetamine, but I want to come back to cocaine. Um, the methamphetamine. Uh, We've been able to measure with brain imaging studies dramatic changes in, among other things, the reward system of the brain, the part of the brain that makes you feel pleasure and feel uh, enjoyment in life, uh, the prefrontal cortex, which controls judgment, and um, uh, and the part of the brain that is involved with memory and cognition. All of those parts of the brain are damaged by um, uh, methamphetamine. And it's it's not like it's damaged. It's actually damaged. When individuals have been using methamphetamine chronically, their brains are functioning like people with a traumatic brain injury. They have the significant difficulties thinking, feeling, and um, and making judgments because of the way the drug has affected the brain. 
And what are the treatment options for someone who uses stimulants? Well, right now, um, there's been an extensive um, research effort by the National Institute on Drug Abuse to find medications. Uh, I was involved with that for 10 or 15 years when I was at UCLA, and um, we've tested a lot of medicines. However, our success rate has been um, minimal. Uh, there are a couple of medicines right now that have some promise for the treatment of methamphetamine use disorder, a medicine called Remeron or, or um, a mirtazapine, which is an antidepressant, seems to have some benefits. A recent study in the New England Journal of Medicine just showed that a combination of naltrexone, extended-release naltrexone, and Welbutrin or bupropion, the combination of those medicines appears to be useful for some people. The problem is the number of people those medicines are used for, useful for seem to be relatively modest. The bupropion-naltrexone study, it was maybe one in eight who responded positively. So although there's a lot of searching and a lot of work going into the search for these medicines, right now we don't have medicines. We do have behavioral treatment. Um, there's a technique called contingency management, which has an extensive uh, amount of evidence. And there have been, I don't know, seven or eight analyses of all the data on treating people with cocaine and methamphetamine use disorder. And all of these analyses come to one conclusion, which is that contingency management provides tremendous benefits to people trying to reduce their use of cocaine and methamphetamine. And what do you define contingency management as? Yeah, good question. Contingency management is a very simple concept. It's based on the use of positive reinforcement, that is incentives, rewards, to provided to individuals for behavior that, that demonstrates reduced stimulant use. For example, a person in treatment would come into a clinic and could give a drug-free urine sample and earn a $10 gift card. And if they did that three weeks in a row, they might get three $10 gift cards and a bonus of a $20 gift card. Or they might get rewarded for attending treatment sessions. It's, it's a technique based on operant conditioning, and it's been demonstrated repeatedly, multiple, multiple studies, uh, some of which I did, but um, many others, that this is a technique that really dramatically reduces stimulant use. It sounds too simple to be uh, as effective as it is, but when you look at the data, it's really quite striking that if we want to help people stop using stimulants, contingency management is our first line treatment. And my guess, knowing what I know about rural substance use disorders, it's harder to find practitioners who know how to use contingency management in our rural communities. Yes. Yeah, well, actually, the, the Veterans Administration has, uh, in their treatment programs in the VA, they use contingency management as their primary treatment uh, 
uh, intervention for people with stimulant use disorder. They've been doing that now for three or four years based on the research evidence. Their VA advisory group looked at the evidence and said, we should be doing this. And so they are. They're doing that in the VA nationally. However, that's about the only place contingency management is being done. Um, the idea of coming up with money to fund this in our non-VA health system hasn't happened yet. Um, there's also, there are attitudes by both clinical people and policymakers about whether this is an acceptable way to provide treatment, whether providing people with tangible incentives is something that, quote unquote, should be done, or if they should be getting sober because they should be getting sober, not because they're being rewarded. I, I have, I did, I've done these talks now for 25 years, and, and my, um, what I try to tell people is, look, if you work with people with stimulant use disorder for as long as I have, and you find something that works, you really stop asking, is this how we should do it? Because you want something that's effective and contingency management is effective. I think we're making progress on getting that message across. There are some projects now around the United States using contingency management. But the biggest challenge is that there are Medicaid regulations that are make it challenging to use incentives with people on Medicaid. That's the big issue we're fighting right now and trying to get approval to allow people to use contingency management. Interesting. I hadn't even thought about the the barriers with the payment system. Oh, it's 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 a game changer. It's 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 brought everything to a stop. I've I do training all over the country and i've probably had 20 states say okay you've convinced us the data are clear let's do contingency management and then i have to say well there's a problem um we're making progress there was just a, a statement released by the office of the inspector general from the health, office of health and human services that gives us some guidelines for how to go about using contingency management. And I think we're going to see increased use right now, but it's still in the early stages. You're affiliated with the Center on Rural Addiction at the University of Vermont. Why do you think it's important to put a rural lens on substance use disorders? Well, I think that the uh, development of our treatment over the last 50 years since we've had a treatment system for people with substance use disorders has typically focused in urban settings. We set up clinics, we set up programs, we need a big volume to make them viable. And so the system and how we think about treatment really has been based on facilities in urban centers, things like methadone clinics where people can come and big rehab centers where people can uh, travel there, you know, from the local area and get treatment. And so there's been this idea that facilities need to be pretty big and have multidisciplines and have lots of uh, different services available. And so they've tended to end up in the urban centers. And many of our Illicit drug problems, the heroin problem, the crack cocaine problem, really were focused predominantly in the urban parts of America. But 
in the last 20 years, certainly the opioid crisis has taken um, the addiction problem out to rural communities, and methamphetamine has has predominantly affected um, rural communities. And there is no system in much of, of the rural America. Uh, people have trouble getting access to care. They have trouble um, finding a place that's qualified to provide uh, treatment. Um, if they're in outpatient treatment, which much of the treatment in the U.S. is, many people are ending up driving 100 miles to the local clinic. And so the Center for Rural Addiction is is about how do we address those issues? How do we make treatment more accessible? How do we bring treatment into the the non-urban areas of America so that people with addiction disorders can access uh, effective treatment? Well, and with that, you know, we've been advocating the grant funds because there's been a pile of, of grants from the federal that's come down that the funds and the other resources that have been earmarked for opioid use disorder, that that, you know, mindset be expanded to address substance use disorders. Do you see parallels in addressing both opioids and stimulants? Oh, sure. And actually, the most recent of the federal grants to the states, what are called the SOR grants, um, do allow for for that money, even though it's called opioid response money, they do allow for that money to be used for treating people for stimulant use disorder. And so your ad, advocacy and others has, has made a difference. And I think for the first four years of those grants, starting in 2016 or something, um, only opioids could be treated. Now, opioids and stimulants. Now, you could argue that we should be adding alcohol and tobacco and and uh, any substance use disorder to those. Um, and I would certainly think that's a good idea. But at least uh, this most recent funding does allow for treatment services for stimulant use disorder. And that that's part of the reason I'm getting all these inquiries about, okay, we want to like expand our treatment for cocaine and methamphetamine use disorder. What should we be doing? And so I think it's a step in the right direction. And I think that the issue of stimulants is clearly now, I mean, it was in the uh, Biden um, uh, national drug plan that was released a couple of months ago that treatment for people with stimulant use disorder needs to be upscaled and um, that's uh, one of their priorities, including the use of contingency management. So thinking about you know what people can do on the ground, if a community coalition working to address substance use disorders wanted to do more in relation to stimulants, what advice would you have for them? What, what steps could they take? Well, the first thing they, they need to uh, recognize is that um, unlike in the earlier epidemic, back in the 90s and early 2000s, when we're talking about stimulants now, we're talking about a, drugs that produce uh, overdose death. Uh, that wasn't true 20 years ago. But the current more potent methamphetamine and fentanyl that's in everything means that there needs to be an initial um, uh, focus on 
uh, raising the visibility of treatment, getting treatment uh, and, and harm reduction services expanded to help reduce the death rate from, from these drugs. Emergency departments have to be ready to treat people with methamphetamine psychosis and people coming in with stroke and heart attack and uh, overdoses that look different than, than opioid overdoses. Um, and so that's one of the steps. The other step really, I mean, from my point of view is we got to have, we got to figure out a way to get this very effective treatment method used in our communities. Um, it's for, for the treatment of people with stimulant use disorder, contingency management has a similar level of effectiveness as buprenorphine does for the treatment of people with opioid use disorder. So we have this incredibly effective treatment we're not using. And I would encourage groups to talk with their state agency about doing some pilot projects, about funding some uh, uh, use of contingency management using the evidence-based parameters. Now, when you hear this thing, well, we'll use rewards and we'll use incentives some people think, well, I know what we'll do. We'll give people candy bars when they come in, or we'll give them gold stars on a chart. That's not contingency management. That's using small incentives. Contingency management, there's a great literature on it. There's lots of um, uh, groups that are that can provide consultation. Getting a real contingency management program going will save a lot of lives if uh, it can. It, we can start getting that technique used. Sounds like a great plan. Let's all make sure that we know what resources are out there. I know that, you know, for the opioid crisis, we spent, I don't know how much time and energy pushing that everybody have Narcan. What, what do we do for stimulants? Well, nar that Narcan's a good idea as well, because remember, a lot of these, all the, virtually all the cocaine now, and, and much of the methamphetamine has fentanyl in it. So when someone is overdosed, if if the ambulance arrives at an at a somebody's house and they're told this person was just using methamphetamine and they overdosed, um, well, you don't know for sure if they've had a methamphetamine overdose or an opioid overdose because if the drug had fentanyl in it, now there's different symptoms and the ambulance people would know that, but they may want to the people who are stimulant people with stimulant use disorder should carry Narcan because they don't know when they're going to get a, a, a purchase, a drug that is going to have fentanyl in it. So Narcan is part of the package. Um, for those who use uh, intravenously, uh, having clean syringes is, uh, will reduce the amount of HIV and hepatitis C we're going to see associated with uh, the use of uh, drugs. And I, and I think it's important to, one of the factors that really is critical in the between, when you compare a population of individuals who have heroin or fentanyl addiction versus a, a group that have stimulant addiction is that the people with stimulant addiction are much less interested in treatment. They have a much um, greater skepticism about whether treatment's going to be helpful to them. So within our health system, Doctors and nurses in primary care clinics and in emergency departments, they're going to see methamphetamine, people with methamphetamine use disorder, and providing them, helping them not die from overdose, and addressing their 
medical problems is going to be critical. Obviously, our hope is to get these folks into recovery and to get them into long-term sobriety. However, that's a challenge and it's going to take time. And in the meantime, we have to make sure these folks don't die of their an overdose or their related medical and psychiatric issues related to their drug use because it's tough. They're not an easy group to get into treatment. Absolutely. Thank you for that. So last question, the question I ask all my guests, if you could do anything, what would you do to improve health and health care in rural America? Well, I think that improving health care in rural America, I think is going to take more innovation around distance uh, technologies. I mean, I think that um, during the pandemic, the increased use of telemedicine, I think, was sort of paradoxically a uh, tremendous step forward. Uh, I know with uh, the treatment of opioid dependence, the use of telemedicine to deliver buprenorphine treatment really was remarkably life-saving and was and allowed something that wouldn't have been able to be delivered to be delivered. I think the same thing is true for these behavioral treatments. We have to find a way to get them out to people um, so that they don't all have to come and cluster at some addiction treatment center in some rural place that's 200 miles away from them. I think there are app-based treatments that are now available. I know there's one for contingency. There are several for contingency management that where the person can actually participate in a contingency management program on their on their you know iPhone um, and uh, more innovation to allow doctors to see patients over telemedicine, therapists to see patients over video therapy sessions, and the use of apps and other things that take healthcare out to the people in rural areas. Um, we, I think access is just a huge problem, and we just need more innovation in that, in that way to get the treatment to to people, mobile treatment vans, things like that, all those things I think should be scaled up to take treatment to where the patients are. Absolutely. And I have to always put in a plug when people bring up telehealth. We can't have telehealth if we don't have rural broadband. That's right. Exactly. And that's in many of the places I'm working, West Virginia, um, Vermont, uh, Montana, there uh, have huge distances and broadband is not universally available. So you're absolutely right. Well, thank you for joining me today, Rick. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed your qu good questions and, uh, and I hope I could be useful. Thank you. That's Dr. Richard Rawson advocating for leveraging technology to improve healthcare access. If you want to be part of the conversation about rural health, join VRHA for the kickoff of our Pride of Rural Virginia event, June 12th. Links to details and registration are in the show notes. If you want to be part of the conversation about rural health, join VRHA for the virtual kickoff of our Pride of Rural Virginia event, June 12th. Links to details and registration are in the show notes. The Rural Health Voice is the podcast of the Virginia Rural Health Association. It is sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health and underwritten by the National Rural Health Association.